Welcome to the Optimistic Curmudgeon, where the best ideas win. I'm your host, Josh Herring. Today, my guest is Dr. Mike Young. Dr. Young is a lecturer in the Humanities Department at Faulkner University and a leading scholar on Hans Georg Gadamer. Dr. Young, welcome back to the Optimistic Curmudgeon. <laughs> well, thank you. I, I enjoy the topic or the title of the program. <laughs> oh, fantastic. I, I'm so sorry about losing our original episode, but I'm so glad you were willing to come back and uh, for, for rehashing Gadamer today. It's going to be great. Oh, certainly. Certainly. No problem. Dr. Young, I, I suspect that many of our listeners may have heard the term Gadamer perhaps in a theory class or in a hermeneutics class, but we probably have plenty of folks who have no idea who he is. So uh, yeah. let's start there. Who was Gadamer and why do people study him today? Right. Well, one thing that's interesting about him is he lasted 102 years. Uh, he passed away in the year 2002. He was born in 1900. So in many regards, as a scholar, um, he was one who traversed and witnessed and participated in the 20th century. And uh, so that makes him an interesting character. Um, he was obviously probably pretty well known, a student of Heidegger. Um, although Heidegger <laughs> initially said of uh, Gadamer that uh, he, he doesn't show much promise as a philosopher. And uh, it wasn't until later that they read Aristotle together that he was impressed with Gadamer's uh, uh, insight and acumen in uh, reading t philosophical texts. But uh, Gadamer also said about his own upbringing that he would wish on no child the kind of upbringing he received. Uh, his father was in the natural sciences and pharmacology and uh, was quite disappointed when his son chose the humanities. Uh, in fact, said, you're just participating in that twaddle, <laughs> you know, that non-scientific uh, uh, arena of study that just doesn't amount to anything. And so Gadamer was hinting at that he, in some regards, was in rebellion of, or at least by way of contrast to his own father, very rigid, uh, harsh upbringing. Um, so that was uh, some of the drive perhaps in him. But uh, he came from a family that, uh, well, I think it was his grandfather, or great-grandfather was um, apparently a large man and was uh, in the division of the army that was for large, tall men. And um, <laughs> which was interesting now. And then they had a big and tall unit in the army. Yes, yes, that's interesting, isn't it? That's um, and then afterwards, Gadamer said, Well, what does one do after uh, serving in the military? Well, you either beat your children or you become a lumberjack or something like that. <laughs> so he, he has a bit of a background of uh, some tough males, although he didn't know his grandfathers. He just knew of them. And um, his mother died at the age of four. And uh, so there's some tragedy in his background when he was very young. And um, uh, again, was very influenced by his father, but not necessarily in a positive way. How interesting. I want to kind of back up to that time span that you mentioned, uh, 1900 to 2002. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, certainly there's there's World War One, there's World War Two. There's sort of the passing away of an old world Europe and the rise of uh, the modern era. There's the sexual revolution of the 60s and 70s. Mm -hmm. uh, there's the rise of the Eurozone economy in late 1980s and into the 1990s. 
Um, there's a lot of stuff that happens on a historical level. Um, right. but could you walk us through some of the big intellectual shifts that are happening across that century that maybe oh God was either tied to or was shaped by? Yeah, well, some of the critical things um, would be, I think, and perhaps in response, at least in part, to World War One, World War Two, there was a, um, a, a, well, almost a dystopian perspective of man's condition, man's um, inhumanity to man, and so philosophy, I think, exhibited some of that, and there was a sense of loss of our capacity to know, um, and there was a kind of recoiling back to one's just individual self. Mm. And uh, I think uh, very much connected with Gadamer was the idea of language being uh, becoming simply something recognized as um, a social political ploy, uh, a dynamic that uh, you manipulate other people with, but it wasn't a means by which you either discovered or told or shared truth. And uh, such things as mathematical symbolic language, you know, came to the forefront, uh, certainly in the realm of sciences and mathematics, but uh, it was also an expression of a, um, well, disappointment, if you will, in uh, normal, natural language, having any capacity to uh, divulge truth to one another. And so there was that kind of swing in, in reaction to even our linguistic life uh, in the world. Um, and Gadamer counters that, I think, and uh, goes against that. Uh, and then, of course, we have, quote, postmodern era, uh, in which, you know, epistemologically, um, we really don't know. It is simply a projection by our own will and mind upon the world and in our own personal individualized interpretation of things. And thus we are kind of isolated uh, atoms floating around, ricocheting off each other with our own each individual interpretations of reality. And um, so he traversed all of that and um, I think sought to counter some of that. And he's quite often marked as our maybe first impression seen as a kind of relativist himself. But I think he tries to supersede that and, and yet also avoid a naive objectivism, uh, somewhat of a um, Aristotelian seeking uh, the mean between two extremes in that regard. Could you explain a little bit more what you mean by the idea of a naive objectivism? Like that's a that's a helpful phrase. I want to make sure I'm following your thought. Right. Yeah. Naive, naive objectivism is the assumption that we immediately grasp an object, a thing, um, a language, artwork, whatever, that we immediately grasp the truth of it. We know it as it is in itself without being uh, aware of the layers of dynamic of our own historical conditionedness, our own background. Uh, imposing um, or at least projecting onto our understanding of something. So in other words, a naive objectivism is the assumption that we are kind of a pure receptacle and that there's nothing there that we simply receive with wholeness and clarity without any participation of the object of from ourselves onto it. And so that naive objectivism is um, 
a kind of a false assumption that we uh, are not involved in or are, are, are participating in our own understandings prior to our receiving the impressions, the empirical data, whatever, of an object, text, or even artwork. So in that sense, there's a there there is something happening when we encounter something that whether it's a text or an idea or uh, perhaps my my coffee mug is my favorite yeah. philosophy class example. <laughs> I, I've almost always got it with me, but there is something about that I bring to that. It's not just that yes. I encounter the thing, but in the encounter, there's a me that is shaped by a past. Right. And there, there's some sort of whatever meaning is to be found in that interaction is in the meeting of those two. Is that, yeah, is that we, we bring something to the table and um, our own background experiences, our past, our cultural context, etc. All those things come to bear. And um, what Gautamer is ultimately trying to get at is saying, OK, prior to method or the application of any method is there's something going on. And that something going on is this dynamic of us uh, bringing our background, our experiences uh, to encounter the other, be it, again, text or object or artwork. And that uh, there's a, a movement back and forth between the two as we seek to come to understanding of it. Well, that idea of movement is really, I think it's one of the most interesting parts of, of Gadamer. And it's... Uh... Uh, if I'm remembering this correctly, that's that's his idea of play and the, the yes. movement back and forth and that meaning is that to some extent in play and it's it's back and forth in the uh, what he might call the mediation of, of horizons and in, in interpretation. Right. Uh, but I, I might be getting ahead of myself. Um, I want to back up real quick before we get mm -hmm. to the, the deeper parts of Gadamer. Um, I wonder if you could... Uh, Back up just a little bit to, you, you mentioned that Gadamer's father referred to the study of the humanities as twaddle. Um, yeah. I'm not sure I, what the proper translation of what he said <laughs> from the German was, but that was that was what uh, Jean Grodin says of, uh, of his father. I'm sure I'm sure Dwight Schrute would have the proper uh, German for us in that moment, yeah. the, uh, the twaddlestein or something. But uh, I, let, me, let me add real quick, too, that on Gadamer's father's deathbed his father asked heidegger is my son ever going to amount to anything because and, and Gadamer was all i mean hans was already uh, an established scholar by that time but his what father just could not envision him being of any <laughs> credibility by studying in the humanities and philosophy it just it just did not resonate with him at all well, Gadamer is certainly not the first or I'm sure not the last uh, humanities student or graduate student to have a parent who simply doesn't really perceive the value of mm -hmm. higher study of the humanities. Um, what what case would you make to a theoretical parent who has a, a student who, uh, and let's, let's even just say hypothetically, uh, a student at a really great institution like Faulkner or Baylor or Hillsdale, one of the mm -hmm. places that does humanities and does it really well. Uh, but that that student is studying humanities in the best way, not like a crazy lefty loony humanities kind of place, but good humane study. What what case would you make for the twaddle actually being worthwhile? Well, I think in our current context in our uh, culture, uh, there could be much said about the value of knowing how one ought to live. Hmm. What is good? What is truth? And these essential questions of being human 
come to the forefront. And um, while we may not produce anything physical that we can sell, <laughs> studying the humanities, except maybe a book that never makes much money, but <laughs> um, there is something to be said for uh, reflection on what it is to be a human being in the world and how we are to live together. Mm -hmm. And we are currently struggling with what is a human being, anthropology, uh, politics, etc. How does one live in community? These are all critical issues. And humanities taps into the millennia old um, discussion of that. And there are insights to be gleaned along the way that are invaluable. Why not try to stand on the shoulders of those that have gone before us rather than starting with a clean slate with nothing before us and try to come up with it ourselves? Uh, no, there's too much of a richness that's gone before that uh, we can draw upon, i.e. the great tradition. So mom and dad, if your child chooses the humanities, they're choosing something good. And if nothing else, on a pragmatic level, they can learn to write and think well. And that's applicable in all kinds of industrial areas. <laughs> it, it's so true. And I think it's, a, it's an argument that uh, sometimes I feel like I'm in circles where everyone knows that. And then I talk with a student or someone at church or just a friend and realize, nope. Uh, they're actually that is by far still the minority view, even if we happen to be in circles where it seems like everybody is trumpeting this recovery of uh, what Scott Yenner called old wisdom. Uh, okay. It still is is still the minority view. Yeah. Well, uh, Dr. Young, could you take us back to the uh, perhaps mid to latter 20th century uh, and what uh, what Gadamer called the problem of language and help mm -hmm. help us understand what was going on philosophically at that time? Why did it seemed like we hit this moment when people lost confidence in words as something that could actually unite people. What, what was going on philosophically that will help us understand Gadamer's major insights? Yeah, well, we could go all the way back to Schleimacher as well, a theologian, German theologian, and his hermeneutics uh, is part of a factor in that that, in, uh, that Gadamer was certainly aware of and, and responded to. Um, but language had lost its... Um, uh, value as being, as holding the capacity to reveal being, if you will. And uh, I think, again, it had been reduced to, as I said earlier, uh, simply a, a power that human beings have in social and political contexts to simply manipulate, to assert oneself, uh, but not directly connected to the reality of being or to any kind of measure of truth, uh, but really was simply something of a construct of um, willfulness mm -hmm. and um, disavowed any um, clarity or uh, capacity to uh, express that which is true or, and, and that truth was inaccessible to us. Uh, that we really are only perspectival in our relationship to the world. Our own individual perspective projected onto reality, uh, but the reality itself we can't know. And so I think Gadamer is, again, attempting to uh, counter that, uh, but also, again, while avoiding that naive objectivism at the same time. Because, of course, I'm sure it's not that hard to rush to that naive objectivism to kind of assert. As a reaction, yeah. Sure. I mean, there's sort of a, uh, 
I mean, almost a, I, I can see the argument for sort of a logocentrism that simply asserts words as the primary anchor and mm -hmm. words as the conduit for meaning from mind to mind without being able to really explain why that happens or right. put it into a kind of a, a deeper context. Um, so I want to kind of, I think it's interesting that you had two phrases that caught my, my, my ear in that, in that uh, explanation, the, uh, Language is capacity to reveal being. I think that's a fascinating phrase. Um, any other comments you want to make about what language does in connection to being? Yeah. Well, what Gonim, some phrases from Gonimer I, I jotted down is one is that um, being that can be understood mm. is language. And that language is the house of being. And um, there is one, one line at one point, I've forgotten where it was, or I don't think it's in truth and method, but he says conversation that we are. In other words, reality, understanding, ontology is uh, accessible or known or understood only by way of language. And as I tell students that we can't think a thought except we think it through language. Mm. Now, like Aristotle, we might have an impression with the passive intellect, but to shift from passive to active intellect is to move into language because mm -hmm. then we name it or we attempt to describe it. We think <laughs> um, uh, that which is impressing us. And so again, uh, uh, being or language is the household of being. So uh, that's how we encounter the world is through language. And so Language is dynamic, certainly. In fact, I have sitting right here next to me on my desk um, the Oxford uh, Compact Dictionary, English oh. Dictionary, and it's 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 well, it represents twenty-seven thousand pages. And what it, what they did is they took pictures and shrunk each page, and so on. On it's a rather large book, probably what eighteen inches tall. Um, wow. They took pictures and put them of the pages, and so there's like 12 pages per page, and they send you, along with the book, a nice little magnifying <laughs> glass to uh, <laughs> be able to see the words on each page. My point being is that language is huge, right? I mean, any given language has a vocabulary that's so expansive. It's lively. New words come on the scene. Mm. Uh, words take on new meanings. And so you think, well, it's rather slippery stuff. Uh, nothing seems to be anchored. Well, no, it's it's more of an example of the liveliness of language is an example of our living in the world, encountering being, and, if you will, seeing it in different times and angles and uh, adding more language, more understanding of that being. And so, yes, it, it can be in context of the word can mean this or that. Um, but that seems to me more the liveliness of it rather than the slippery inaccessibility of it. I think that makes a lot of sense. And I'm looking at some of the phrases that you you, you gave us. Uh, language is the house of being. And I'm thinking that through kind of metaphorically that mm -hmm. uh, we, we sort of have we have trouble discerning being itself. I know uh, those are. I, I tried to wade through Heidegger's being and time, and I, I don't know that I understood Heidegger. I think I might have understood my understanding of Heidegger, but I don't think I got to yeah. itself there. But um, what we can, we might not be able to perceive being, but we can perceive language. 
And if so, if language is that vast and complex, that suggests something about just how complex the nature of being itself is and the yeah. how vast being is. Yes. Uh, which sort of at least prompts me to be kind of like amazed. That that's really fascinating. That that yeah. uh, if if language is that complex, and that's only even those twenty seven thousand pages compressed and condensed are those are not the totality of human language. That's right. the and that's one language. <laughs> Multiple various languages have, if you will, different emphases or nuances or tones to it that capture mm. different aspects of being, I think. And I then I was saying this, that it, it's not that being is inaccessible, is that we only know it. Gondomer emphasizes our finitude, I think, even as Plato does. Um, so we are finite in our capacity to know being, but we can know it through the medium of language in part. And like Plato, uh, Gadamer did his dissertation on Plato. Uh, like Plato, the frustration we had with him and his dialogues ending where he, they part and walk off and no conclusion is made, you know. Well, that's, that's intentional on Plato's part because he wants to say, we've made some ground. We, we've gained some insights here in this dialogue, this dialectic approach, but it's open-ended. There's still yet more questions that can be raised and discussed. We, we've not uh, attained the totality of justice or beauty or whatever. Um, there's more to be said. There's more to inquire about. And so it's it's not that we can't obtain knowledge or understanding of being. It's just that it's partial and that we maintain an openness for further inquiry, which maintains I think, um, or should maintain, the sense of wonder of being alive in the world. And I think wonder is one of the primary drives of being philosophical. Uh, Plato certainly thought so. I mean, that's that line from the Timaeus right. that philosophy begins in wonder. Sure. Now, I, I suppose it's that openness to further dialogue and openness to question that sort of leaves Gadamer with a foot in both philosophical camps, or at least multiple mm -hmm. philosophical camps, but on the one hand, I read Gadamer and think, wow, he sounds like he's right up there with the most convoluted of critical theorists and is yeah. wrestling with the meaning of subjectivity and mm -hmm. divergent experiences. But he also never quite lets go of the fact that there is meaning to be discerned and it does not entirely come from us, mm -hmm. but it's somehow formed in the interaction that we have with whatever the object of study is. Mm -hmm. Right. There's that. Um, well, we are participants in the historical movement of dialogue, of conversation, if you will. And we, in our moment, bring to bear our experience, our uh, horizon or range of experience uh, to whatever we're discussing or trying to understand. And we participate in it. And um, uh, thus it's a lively, uh, not a dead-ended um, empirical, objective dead things but rather the liveliness of being that we are participating in excellent well dr young you've um uh, you you brought up Gadamer's research on plato and i know from truth and method he has a deep tie to aristotle right um, how would you describe his relationship to plato or aristotle is he an aristotelian is he a platonist oh. is he neither like how, how where would you put him in those kind of camps well, he, he he makes one comment that he he finds um, 
Plato more spiritual than Aristotle. <laughs> he is um, he he sees Aristotle's logic, uh, the deductive, inductive reasoning, and so forth. And by association, this this affects Aquinas as well. He sees that as not comprehensive in our seeking to know and understand. Um, it's something post-encounter with being. And, um, but where he sides with Aristotle, in fact, what opened up um, much of his inquiry uh, for truth and method was reading Nicomachean ethics, and particularly the idea of phronesis, of a pragmatic or practical application. And from that, he, he found his um, golden mean for hermeneutics, that um, hermeneutics is, is practical application, bringing our past into bear upon that which we were encountering to understand. And we seek to practically grasp, understand, and apply our own background, letting it being, uh, if you will, responded to by the object or thing we were encountering, etc. And so this practical application um, and also note, too, in the Nicomachean Ethics, the golden mean has a range. It's not a pinpoint. Um, you know, always draw a graph for students if you have a line for measuring excellence and then a line here for measuring the, uh, the two extremes, you know, the deficiency or the excess. And you, you draw a line then of approaching uh, the virtue. I can't do this backwards in my, like this very well. But anyway, you get a bell curve. Yeah. You get a bell curve. So when you, you obtain the excellence of the virtue, it's a kind of a rounded top. In other words, there's a range in there because it depends on the individual's capacity, the given context and circumstances. And those, so those particulars are uh, have to be considered um, in application of exercising the virtue, say, of courage. Um, you know, am I... Um, I want to be courageous and help this uh, person in distress being attacked by this 275 pound guy. Well, am I, the, am I capable of doing that or how shall I go about that? You know, those kinds of things. So um, uh, th there's, he sees that then is, is um, uh, the means of what are a doorway into what hermeneutics is doing. It's a practical application of self-reflection, of our own conditionedness, historical conditionedness, and in being open to that which we're encountering and that play, that toss towards and catch back from uh, the thing we're seeking to understand. And I always, always like the illustration of, um, of the idea of play. I don't mean to jump ahead of your questions here. Oh, but sure. That's, that, that's where I was thinking about we should head. Like we're, <laughs> we're headed towards that kind of vocabulary discussion. Yeah. Yeah, that, that play. Well, first, the historical uh, condition is, is just simply that hoop skirt, as my professor used to say, uh, it's that range of our experience, our history, our point in time and all that. So it's our field of being. And we come and encounter the other hoop experience and range and context of the thing we're seeking to understand. And the, I think a very accessible illustration is the idea of translation of a sentence from another language. Mm -hmm. So you're studying Spanish and, and you recognize uh, the verb and a noun or two in the sentence. And so you project your initial understanding on it. Um, uh, and I, I 
well, a little side note, I, in my dissertation, I used the word um, pre-judgment rather than prejudice, which is usually translated. And I think uh, prejudice has too negative a connotation in our own time period. Um, but pre-judgment also with the hyphen aids the idea of movement, you know, sequence. Mm -hmm. So we, we cast our pre-judgments onto the sentence, but the sentence pushes back. Mm -hmm or if you will, throws back our <laughs> initial interpretation, because one, what about the ending of that uh, verb? And uh, what about those annoying little prepositions, you know? And so you have this play of moving back and forth. You take another stab at it. Well, that doesn't quite fully fit because the sentence stands, right? It exists and it pushes back against our four projections. And so I have an example for you of that process. Yeah. Uh, one of our one of our Latin teachers was telling me last week she was working with her class on translating a section from Ovid's Metamorphoses, where mm -hmm. uh, they're translating um, Apollo is chasing Daphne and she's turned into a tree to escape Apollo's predatory mm -hmm. advances. Well, and the Latin literally describes bark covering her breast as she's literally transformed from a woman into a tree. Mm -hmm. Well, the student translates this as um, her breast began barking. <laughs> <laughs> so it came time to they her the teacher's method for the class is to kind of popcorn call on students to translate and yeah. it happened to land on this student and he offered up. There's translation with all yeah. the confidence that only a high school junior can have. Yeah. And everyone in the class just looked at him. It was like, no, there is no way. <laughs> and of course, it did exact the sentence did exactly what you said. They have to kind of this he had mistranslated a noun as a verb mm -hmm. that profoundly misunderstood the meaning of what was going on. Right. And in that play, they came back to a much more accurate understanding of the meaning involved. Right. So, right. I thought it was a excellent illustration. And that's the thing that, that the sentence, it stands, it, it has a reality and there's a truth in it. And that, um, our four projections or our pre judgments, whatever, uh, if, if we are self-reflective at all, uh, we will find out they don't always stand. We have to be open to, and to hear again, uh, from mm -hmm. the, the sentence. And so that play back and forth until there becomes, well, quote, the fusion of horizons. There's a measure of, uh, of mutual understanding that I'm understanding the sentence and the sentence has um, shown itself to me, you know. And so that can be of varying degrees um, uh, because one can come back to the sentence and, and detect a nuance that perhaps was missed earlier or whatever. Uh, but nevertheless, that's the, the liveliness of interpretation of hermeneutics, of that practical application, that phronesis. Now, is it, it, it I, I love that illustration of translation because that seems to be an obvious place where we're positioned at one point in time and attempting to understand what is meant from a different point in time in a different language. Uh, tell me your thoughts on this. I've, I've thought for, for a couple of years now that the the task of either a really a history teacher or professor or a literature teacher or professor is really in uh, is to do something similar in that either you're working mm -hmm. with a core text that is different and difficult from what the student might encounter on his or her own. And especially in a history class context, you're dealing with a primary source 
And that really the task of teaching is in that sense, a task of mediation. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's of trying to help bridge those horizons together and help the student get to the point where they understand the text that they're reading. And so the teacher is to some extent a, uh, a master of this hermeneutic. And that's in, I mean, let me stop there and see what you think about that, that, that much. Is that, a, is that an accurate application of Gadamer to the task of teaching? Yes, and, and I might say that one of the things Gadamer does with hermeneutics is he makes it universal. Mm. Rather than being the field of initially of theology and then of law, um, interpretation, and so forth, he universalizes hermeneutics. In other words, he's saying this occurs in his phenomenological analysis of what's going on in our coming to understanding. This occurs in all of our living and encountering the world. Hmm. And hence the wide uh, illustrations of everything from art to language uh, to history. And so, yes, history is um, a mediation of um, two worlds, if you will. But it, one of the critical things, too, that Gadamer is saying that our historical conditionedness is not a liability. It is that which enables us to come to understanding of the other. That we have had some experience. We have lived some life. We have some understandings of our own context and so forth. That enables us to be open to the other and to learn of its historical context and setting and so forth. Now, what's required of us as a good hermeneutician is to be open to reflection, you know, to be open to um, an awareness of, okay, what am I projecting onto this text? Or what am I um, imposing on this? Not that it's bad. It's, it's an initial stab at trying to grasp it and understand it, but being aware of what it is. You know, I have this understanding of this thought in my background and experience. And I'm assuming, at least initially, that that's what's going on here. But I at least am aware of what I'm doing in that. But that then allows the other uh, to speak to it and say, well, no, I don't think that's quite right. You know, that doesn't seem to fully fit. And so uh, the historical condition us is not a liability, but an enabling to come to understanding. I find that absolutely fascinating because uh, if, if, if Gadamer is correct, then uh, that means, if I can tell me if this example fits, I mean, that means that I'm reading, I'm reading, let's say, Huck Finn in 2022. And as a, uh, uh, as, a, as a millennial reading in that time period, perhaps I'm overly sensitive to issues of race and gender that sort of just scream at me right. from the text. And right. I'm tempted to say either one of two extremes, like either on the one hand, I might be tempted to say, wow, those idiots in the 19th century, how did Mm -hmm. they not get it? Or perhaps I'm tempted to say, oh my, I'm actually reading it terribly because I'm missing what Twain is saying. But instead, I should be more in a modern position to know, I come to the reading with these predispositions that are shaped by my time and Mm -hmm. the questions that are more frequently asked by my time. Right. So I'm asking di- perhaps different variations on universal questions than Twain is asking. Mm-hmm. And that as I encounter Twain's text, maybe our different versions of his, the universal questions are dialoguing with each other. 
and I emerge with a stronger understanding of race and gender from encountering Huck Finn than if I had only heard the versions of that that are spoken of in my own time. Yeah, and in reacting to flash words, you know, that set off the whole <laughs> arena of uh, current discussion, whatever. And and again, to my point, that historical conditionness enables us to understand. Think in terms of with Huck Finn, he's a boy. I was a boy. <laughs> I, I remember that, you know. And uh, what must it have been like in that kid's eyes, you know? Um, of course, now I'm, I'm being um, perhaps sexist here because I'm just referring to the boy. But it, being a child, being a kid, you know, there are things that are um, identifiable from my experience with his. And to try to uh, participate with him and his experiences in the novel of what it's like as a kid in that time period and so forth. So it seems to me that enables him rather than uh, enables one to understand it um, in that particular factor, as opposed to being a hindrance of some kind. Um, this sounds very similar somehow to uh, John Lukash's idea of historical consciousness. Mm -hmm. The idea of becoming, we're more aware of ourselves as historically contingent beings and more aware of our actions as having historical consequences than previous generations were. Is that a, is that a fair connection? Yeah, and it, again, it's it is um, you know a good hermetician is self-aware, um, and so the, you're aware of your to know your own time and, the, and what has influenced you, what shaped your thinking, to be able to uh, cognitively be aware of them, set them up for critique by that which you the object, the person, the thing you're encountering, allow it to be um, played with in the toss to and fro. I've encountered Gautamer really in two places where uh, first was at Southeastern Seminary where he was withheld with the other dangerous German thinkers for the doctoral students. And the other was at, uh, at Faulkner uh, where I was a doctoral student in the uh, scholarly inquiry class. We had to read his truth and method. Um, typically I, when I bring up Gautamer, uh, I, I enjoy Gautamer. I still don't know that I really understand him, but I really enjoy thinking about the thoughts he's thinking. Um, people tend to groan or hit their head or pretend that they have a headache uh, or just mention that they were very confused. Uh, I wonder, as we're kind of uh, winding towards a conclusion, uh, if you could just walk us through what concepts from Gadamer do you see uh, typically either stump student readers or are just really, really helpful that we haven't covered yet? Like what, yeah, what either stumps people or like, oh, this is a great idea that will change mm -hmm. people's lives. Well, to begin with, I, I sympathize with the, the moaning and groaning, and there's there's a legitimate reason for that. When Goddard was a doctoral student, his fellow students would say anytime they encountered a very convoluted, difficult sentence or paragraph, they referred to it as a gad. <laughs> because apparently Goddard and his conversation, his dialogue, and his writing could be very very difficult to understand. And there is certainly some of that in uh, truth and method, mm. uh, complex sentences and, and uh, abstract thoughts, for sure. You know, I think um, one, one of the values of Gadamer, one is, as mentioned already, that he universalizes uh, hermeneutics. In other words, uh, he expands what is going on as I 
as any of us uh, encounter the world, we are always interpreting. You know, we're, we're seeking understanding, but to do so is to interpret, which involves hermeneutics. But it's not, well, his book's title, his magnum opus of uh, truth and method, um, belies the, the, the assertion that, well, prior to any method, this is what's going on. But he says this is what's going on by using phenomenological analysis, which is a method. So it's a bit of a fudge there. But, um, but he's saying, okay, well, just observe what happens in one's mind as you encounter the other, encounter the other to understand it. And so he is uh, broadening the field of uh, hermeneutical analysis or, or sensitivity to the fact that we uh, interpret things. Um, just like looking out the window, I, I cast an interpretation. It's something familiar, perhaps. But in his analysis, I think what's really valuable is he does, I think, like kind of an Aristotelian golden mean, he swims uh, the middle ground between two extremes. He avoids the relativism, though sometimes he's accused of such, uh, because he does say language can reveal being. And, but he avoids the other extreme of a kind of a naive objectivism, as mentioned, that uh, we know fully, we know completely, and boom, you can set it on the shelf and it's done. <laughs> no, there's a, a movement and a continuation much more akin to platonic dialogues of being open-ended, ground gained, but further insight to be made. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think just that structure is helpful. Plus, um, it should give us the, it should have the potential in, in affecting us of being very sensitive, um, self-aware as we seek to understand the other, being aware of what we come bring to bear. Now, one can argue that you never fully know yourself entirely. True. Well, that's, again, that open-endedness of continued growth and development of being more aware of what I tend to project from my background onto that which I'm seeking to understand and allow it to be affected by the historical affected consciousness of the other <laughs> and hence that movement in play. So Gadamer is helpful in terms of, uh, but first of all, probably stretching the mind, but then mm -hmm. also in considering the complexities of interpretation and of really encountering others so in a way, I suppose it would be fair to say that Gadamer helps his readers become better people because they become more attuned to what does it take to encounter another person? Yeah, well, and that, that's an interesting point. I think it was, was it 1981 when there was the big showdown uh, between Jacques Derrida and Gadamer? And uh, 44 what, minutes into a podcast without bringing up Derrida. <laughs> well, what was interesting about that quote, encounter, everybody was kind of anticipating this big, uh, well, in, well, not a not battle, but uh, the thought of ideas that were quite at odds with each other. And what actually occurred, Derrida just went off another track, just parallel world, if you will. And Gadamer's thought about that uh, event and that um, really non-conversation uh, non-dialogue. He says, well, one must assume that uh, uh, conversation or dialogue or hermeneutics requires a good will. 
And he interpreted or understood what happened in that event is a lack of goodwill. That Derrida was just avoiding or, or being dismissive entirely and just went off in a different direction. And to have understanding requires goodwill. And maybe, maybe, maybe that's the key thing to mm. take away from Gadamer. Let's make sure we have a good will, good intention in trying to understand the other, which would involve compassion, um, long-suffering, mm -hmm. kindness, gentleness, all those things. Also, the humility to... Yes, admit the finitude that we have, yeah. Uh, and I'm thinking, like, those two, and I'm... I'm I remember I, I researched that encounter for the end of the uh, term paper I did for that class because I was really curious what would happen. And I read both of their speeches that they each delivered at that conference. And it was it was sort of I found it was kind of disappointing because mm -hmm. I, I was I was right there about 40 years later. But I was kind of ready like, oh, this is going to be get the showdown. Yeah. And behold, they just are two ships passing in the night that never intersect. They right. uh, in debate terms, there was no clash. They never actually interacted with each other's arguments. Yeah. It seems which is also fitting on the level of their ideas, because Gadamer, for all that he is trying to be sensitive to the complexities of language, he never does get away from the fact that being is connected to language. Mm -hmm. And Derrida's central project, at least as I understand it. Uh, was to attempt to reason outside of a logocentric space and try to reason about what would reason look like if there were no language. Yeah. And and so in one sense, they they also don't have, I mean, I, I think one other piece that's necessary uh, in addition to that goodwill is also some level of commonality. Yes. Yeah, they so had of no common ground intellectually on which to stand upon. Yeah, no, very good. And, and, and it was a demonstration of that lack of commonality. Yeah. Uh, well, Dr. Young, we, we've gone around the horn uh, in, in very helpful ways. I, I so appreciate your scholarship and your, your kindness to join me for a conversation about Gadamer. Uh, just in case we've intrigued any listeners and they're now like raring to go and they want to read more Gadamer, uh, where would you encourage people to start mm -hmm. with encountering Gadamer? Well, his, his uh, one essay, I would maybe a good starting point would be uh, The Relevancy of, of the Beautiful. Um, I believe that's the actual title, uh, or it's close to that. Uh, I thought I had it jotted down here somewhere. The relevance of the beauty, beautiful, or something like that. And then a good um, commentary on truth and method that it makes it a little bit more accessible. Maybe not entirely, but a little bit more. Is um, let's see if you can see that. It's uh, Joel Weinsheimer's Gadamer's Gommeter, uh, Hermeneutics. So a commentary on. Um, uh, truth and Method, and then um, uh, David Lynch's uh, collection of essays from Gomer, and uh, so those are make more bite-sized uh, uh, pieces of Gomer's thought. And then you can read the biography too; is really kind of helpful um, by Jean Grodin on uh, Gomer's life. Well, he definitely uh, he is a I, I find him a fascinating figure, and there's not that many people who were uh, engaged in the academy across that very tumultuous century. Mm -hmm. uh, but the fact that he was kind of right there with Heidegger and Hannah Arendt, if I remember mm -hmm. correctly, yes, uh, yes. It just is absolutely fascinating. Yeah. Uh, well, Dr. Young, thank you so much for joining us today on The Optimistic Curmudgeon. It's been a pleasure hosting you. Well, thank you very much. I'm honored to be a part of it and, and to discuss Gautamer with you. Well, thank you listeners for joining us for this episode of The Optimistic Curmudgeon. My guest today has been Dr. Mike Young. If you like this episode, please leave us a five-star review and share the episode with a friend. 
Until next time, seek the true, pursue the good, and love the beautiful. You've been listening to another episode of The Optimistic Curmudgeon, where the best ideas win. I'm your host, Josh Herring. The Optimistic Curmudgeon is a project of Thales Press. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a five-star review and share it with your friends. You can find us on three major social media platforms. Search for The Optimistic Curmudgeon on Facebook and LinkedIn, and find us on Twitter at the handle at TheOptimisticC3. This episode was edited and produced by Madison Kay, audio engineer for The Optimistic Curmudgeon. Until next time, seek the good, pursue the true, and love the beautiful.